I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Long Game with LZM Leach. Welcome to The Long Game with LZM Leach from the Recounting ACADS, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm LZ Granderson. He's Will Leach. He is feeling very optimistic about 2022 because I'm stupid and I always feel optimistic about New Year's and they never turn out well. Uh, We've got a full slate of things today, LZ. We will kick things off by discussing the upcoming college football national championship game between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Georgia Bulldogs and this year's bowl season in general. LZ, if TV ratings mean anything, I'll make the case that college football is as entrenched and powerful as ever. Well, my friend, I watched a mayonnaise bowl. I don't even eat mayonnaise, and I watched mayonnaise bowl. That's all you really need to know. I dunked myself with mayonnaise anyway. That's just what I do over the holidays. I'm glad they finally made a bowl where it happens. After that, Will, I want to talk about athletes and the media. I watched LeBron James at a recent press conference blow off Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's criticism of a meme he posted likening COVID to the common cold and the flu. And it got me wondering, just who is the most media-savvy sports star of them all? So let's break that down, shall we? I personally think you are the most media-savvy sports personality of them all. Then you, my friend, need to get out more. That's true. There's a (laughs) pandemic. I'm seeing no one. Later, we'll dive into the CDC's new and more permissive COVID quarantine guidelines and what they mean for sports with New York Magazine's editor-at-large, David Wallace-Wells, who has also written extensively about COVID. So, LZ, have your questions at the ready. I'm just hoping that being an Arizona Cardinals fan is not bad for your health, Will. It was worse being a St. Louis Cardinals football fan, I assure you. Then we'll wrap up the show with a great This Week in Sports History segment, this time featuring Mark Cuban and our games of the week and our blunders of the week. But first, Will, my friend, what is your sports mood? Go ahead. Give it to me. Hey, you know, the grand American tradition of New Year's Eve. How was yours? We haven't talked since the new year. How did you ring in the new year? How were you, Elsie? I know you're making fun of me now, Will. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, fine. Your Georgia Bulldogs beat the wolves out of our rings. <laughs> they blew the khakis off them. That's exactly what they did. They, they, their khakis we didn't have a chance to put on khakis on. It was weird. Like, that was the thing about that game, right? We've been watching Georgia football all year. They have been this dominant team. But they haven't played a close game since Labor Day. They had that game against Clemson and everything else. that They've either won by 20 or more or that blowout in the SEC championship game. So we figured at the very least, okay, Michigan, that's the Big Ten champs. They're going to give us something. And basically, Michigan was UAB. 
I personally think that's as good as Georgia can play. I think they felt pretty demoralized after the Alabama game. It came up very, very dialed up. But yeah, that was a buzzsaw. I did think Georgia was going to win, but I did see a possibility that Michigan would like run trick plays. They were savvy. They're going to try some stuff. That Georgia ran the halfback pass that no one had seen all year. Felt like, okay, they're on a heater right now. We weren't prepared for that. There's no way you can prepare for that. What they're doing in the SEC, particularly with Alabama and Georgia, is just different. Those teams are built differently. They recruit differently. They show up differently. They come at you in waves. You know, the Alabama-Cincinnati game was surprisingly a lot closer in the first half than a lot of people probably thought. But generally speaking, if you're in the top 10, and certainly if you're a playoff team, your starters are going to be equal. It's about the depth. And it was very clear in the Cincinnati second half that they had just spent all of their energy in that first half to stay in the game. And they had nothing left in the second half. When it came to Michigan, Georgia, I'm not even sure we even had starters that could compare to their starters. They were so much larger. They were so much faster. The quarterback play was night and day. And oh, by the way, the coach got outcoached. They simply were not prepared. Literally by like the middle of the second quarter, I was just like, this isn't a defeat for Michigan. This is actually a realization for Michigan as to who you really are, what you really are, and how far you really are from where you're trying to be. They really did actually did not want to tell you about this because it was really just so kind of definitive. And also it gets away, and I'm curious your thoughts as a Michigan person about this. One of the downsides of the playoff to me is it flattens the season in a way that it shouldn't. There was a time where this Michigan season was just, this is the glorious breakthrough season. The season's been wonderful. They finally beat Ohio State after the horrible 2020 with the cancellations, only two wins, and everything that went wrong. Harbaugh who took a pay cut, right? Took a pay cut to stay, proved it, right? He came out, they beat Ohio State. He played football the way Michigan loves to play. That game that they won at Michigan State of Ohio State is a all-timer of a highlight for Michigan, regardless of what happened to Georgia. But unfortunately, if you lose in the playoffs, I guess your season's a failure. I think that's a shame because other than the ending, it's the platonic ideal of a Michigan season. And if it's 1995 or even 2002, <laughs> we're like, wow, this is the greatest Michigan season. They beat Ohio State. They would have gone to the Rose Bowl and surely wiped the floor with Utah, whoever was there. Right. It was kind of a great thing. The playoff almost kind of ruined it for them a little bit. I don't, you know, as I said, I don't think it ruined it for them. Yeah, I good, think it woke them the hell up. Yeah. This is the standard. This is what you're competing against. You should not be satisfied with Big Ten championships and beating Ohio State. You should be satisfied with beating the Georgias, beating the Clemsons, beating the Alabamas. If you want to be taken seriously as a powerhouse school. And, you know, as I said, midway through the second quarter, I was like, this is good for them. They need to get their ass kicked. I was going to really say some really some really colorful words, but you get my point. Don't worry, they're not taping. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you get my point. You needed this because what you don't want to have happen is you actually leaving the season thinking that you've achieved great things. But they have. What you've they have done, achieved great things. No, what you did this season is achieve what you've accomplished in the 90s. Right. But right. the bar for great things has been moved now. And you need to catch up with the times. You need to recruit differently. You need to scheme differently. And the fact that you were embarrassed on national television by a great 
program should be a wake-up call. And hopefully a lot of the, the underclassmen who were there and got their asses kicked come back hungrier and angrier, and we get to see how they've improved from this as opposed to wallow in pseudo-success because you beat inferior talent. I think it's an excusable loss. I don't think the basketball team losing to Central Florida is excusable, I have to say. <laughs> Just a shifting over to college basketball. The one thing where my line I have over Michigan. Is this your mood now? You're going to move on to college basketball now so you can rub it in my face? I went to Illinois. <laughs> we moved off from college football like 15 years ago. So, uh, so yeah. But no, listen, if it turns out that the Arizona Cardinals play the Los Angeles Rams in the playoffs, which is always a possibility, whoever loses is going to have a lot of heat coming their way. Here, I just hope Michigan fans can appreciate what this was and, as you say, be able to take a step forward. And it doesn't matter because, as we'll talk about in a moment, if Georgia loses to Alabama, the amount of pain that Georgia fans will feel will far exceed whatever (laughs) pain that Michigan fans felt during the New Year's Eve game. Uh, That's probably true. All right, LZ, let's get into our first big story. And you know what? We're going to continue this conversation about college football. Backpedals, scrambles, heaves down, Michigan dominating them from start to finish and booking that revenge tour matchup with Alabama and Indy. That was the sound of number two ranked Georgia routing Michigan in the college football playoff semifinals, setting up a much anticipated showdown against number one Alabama in the national championship game to be played on January 10th in Indianapolis, where I will be surely with several drunk friends of mine that are Georgia fans crashing in my Airbnb that's within walking distance of Lucas Oil Stadium because hotels are going for about $1,000 a night. This will be the 44th bowl game of the season. And overall, these TV ratings for these games are up substantially this year. As silly as some of these games may appear with the odd corporate names in their title. Welcome to the SRS Distribution Las Vegas Bowl. Welcome to Birmingham, Alabama, to the Ticket Smarter Birmingham Bowl. Welcome to the Tropical Smoothie Cafe Frisco Bowl. It is the most anticipated bowl game to date. The Duke's Mayo Bowl. Dude, seriously, <laughs> even, what was that? <laughs> even even the most obscure ones equal or even double the average number of viewers for national NBA and Major League Baseball games. When the Supreme Court ruled earlier this year that college athletes could make money by licensing their names, images, and likenesses, many people predicted that interest in college sports could decline. But LZ, I think we're going to see even more and more bowl games and expanded playoffs because college football seems to be as entrenched as ever. So my question to you, sir, is this. Is there anything that can slow down the popularity of this sport, and why does it have such staying power? First of all, it's football. (laughs) It's our country's pastime. We played baseball a long time ago. Basketball was never our pastime. It's football. And I'm almost willing to bet that if you had two powerhouse high schools that faced off against each other, during Christmas holiday, that too would outrank Major League Baseball, tennis, basketball, and everything else. Let's get Bishop Sycamore back. Let's get those guys back. We we love football. And we didn't get it last year. Not really. Some teams played six games. Some teams played eight. I guess there was a national championship game, though. Was it really? So not only is it our favorite sport, but it's our favorite sport that we really need to get a chance to fully embrace and celebrate a year ago. So we're all vaccinated up. We're boosted. Most of us, many of us are anyway. You and I. And 
these great games were on with these iconic teams like Michigan, as well as Curiosity, Cincinnati. And all of those things formed together to create this incredible amount of interest, which is why you've seen these ridiculous numbers for viewership. But at the very heart of this conversation is the fact that we love football in this country. And no one in Europe will go, oh my gosh, this football is really popular. Why do you think that is? Will it ever end? That would never be a question. You wouldn't right. be in India going, this cricket, it just really seems to be highly popular. I wonder if it's going to die down. So no, right. it's our sport. It's not going anywhere. And it's just a matter of how many different ways can we splice this sport to generate funds. We've done fantasy football because real football wasn't enough. <laughs> and now we're gambling. And pretty soon, we're going to be gambling on fantasy football. <laughs> and once you start gambling on fantasy football, you're going to be three wow. layers removed from the actual game, and we're still going to love it. Think about it, Will. We actually have high ratings for the drafting of players playing football. The Literally the listing of names <laughs> off an Excel spreadsheet. The <laughs> listing of names brings in millions of viewers. And if you don't say the right name by the right number, there are boos. <laughs> there are boos. So this is who we are. This is part of our national identity. And I really don't have a problem with it because as I alluded to earlier, Will, I'm not sure if that's really different from any other nation in the world. You use the phrase, how much you can splice it. I would argue the Duke's Mayo Bowl between South Carolina and North Carolina being a massive, massive ratings hit is slicing it pretty thinly, right? <laughs> and it's funny, though, because, you know, Last year, mm -hmm. the issue was really not names, image, and likeness. I knew some people, really hardcore college football people that were like, well, it's, this is just going to turn it all into a business. Because, of course, <laughs> it was an altruistic <laughs> nonprofit beforehand. Shout out um, to you, Kirk Herbstreet. <laughs> yeah. So certainly, I knew some people that thought it would hurt. I didn't really think that would be a problem. I, I thought, if anything, that would be an improvement, right? Players getting more than they were, to me, seemed like an unalloyed positive. I don't think that could hurt the game. And I don't think it has hurt the game. But remember, our favorite guy, Brett Kavanaugh, love that guy. That guy's awesome. But Brett Kavanaugh, famously, in that ruling, went beyond just name, image, and likeness and said, listen, the NCAA is a un-American organization, was essentially what he said. You cannot just take in all the profits and not give it to the people that are playing the games or your employees because it's always been that way. He was explicit about it. Now, that wasn't law. That didn't immediately make it law. But clearly, it seemed to throw the gauntlet at college sports and say, you better figure this out or you're not going to be allowed to survive anymore. I think what happened next is what's most fascinating, which was basically the NCAA said, Okay, well, we're out. Then figure it out. <laughs> figure it out, the rest of you. And they did. And so you got your power brokers in the SEC who said, come in Oklahoma, come in Texas. You got the smaller conferences, smaller schools kind of pushed out. People always said the NCAA was a cartel. But basically now the cartel is the SEC and, and the Big Ten. And what they've done is in this place where there really kind of are no rules and no real regulations anymore, they have just maximized everything. They floored it across the board. And there's been no punishment for that whatsoever. People have embraced right. it. But I also think it ties into the idea that football represents America in a certain way, not just the violence of it, not just the fight for territory, but the idea that like, fuck it, we're just going to do it.
We're going to do what we want. The people that run college football, which are not the NCAA anymore, are basically saying, all right, let's see what we can get away with. And they get away with all of it. There were some of these bowl games canceled this year because of COVID, because of Omicron. But the ones that were played, they were huge monsters. Remember that ESPN Bowl where they just randomly took two teams in and said, hey, you guys don't have a game? Let's just play it. They put it together in a week and it turned out to be another huge hit. There's going to be more and more bowl games because people do watch this. And I think it fits into something in the American character, particularly in the idea of college football, because in the South, no one captures the passion of the people down here than college football. Mm -hmm. But you also see that in California. You also see that in Washington. You see that in Michigan. You see that in Pennsylvania. College football allows you to have a national sport that's also hyper-local. Listen, the Tennessee Titans are a huge part of the most massive sports league in the country. But if you wear a Tennessee Titans hat in the Bahamas, people are probably not going to stop and be like, yeah, go Titans, man. But if you're wearing an Alabama hat or a Georgia hat or a Tennessee hat, you've got a bunch of best friends. The number of people that I walked by after that debacle against Georgia who were Michigan fans were wearing Michigan gear and we just looked at each other and just said, go blue. Yeah. (laughs) And you say that you don't see that with the Lions? (laughs) No, 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 actually, no. We just say go. Like run, run, be free. Just just go, just just go. No, you're right, Will. And there is something very American about bowl season too. And it's not going to be flattering what I have to say, but it needs to be said. There is acceptance of mediocrity. (laughs) <laughs> That's very American as well. Mm-hmm. Two six and six teams should not be having a bold game on national television. <laughs> <laughs> but because it makes money, they do. And this is very much to me along the lines of auto-tuned hits when people <laughs> can't really sing. This is very much aligned with this movie has literally no plot Barely any script, but we just blow up a lot of stuff and it makes a lot of money. So sure, let's just keep doing it because it's profitable. And that's the same thing I see when it comes to this brand of entertainment that is college sports. Sometimes you will even have a team with a losing record in a bowl game. And you're just like, well, what's the purpose of the bowl? And my stupid ass used to think it was about the battles of the best versus the best. But no, the purpose of the bowl game It's just to make more money, to squeeze as much as you possibly can out of this sport during this season while there still is a season. That's it. Speaking of things that are American. (laughs) Yeah, and that's very American too. And every now and then, you may get some excellence out of squeezing together two mediocre teams, but you can't escape the premise, which is you're not trying to highlight excellence. You're just trying to make money. And if excellence happens to come out of this, then shit, we hit the jackpot. But if not, well, we fill these three hours on television and made our money. Hey, I really don't like your idea that somehow mediocrity is not supposed to be rewarded in this country. That's how I got here. That's what, that's what I'm about. This is what I've stood for. Ah, uh, whatever. But on the other side of this, it's just honest though, right? I'll put it this way. As a baseball fan or an NBA fan, I don't get a sense when I'm hanging out with other Knicks fans or I'm talking to fans of other teams that they're obsessed with how much money the Knicks are making or how much money the Lakers are. They don't care, right? They, don't, they just right. want to win games. College football, there's a vibe about, you see it's in the SEC, you see it's in the Big Ten, the idea that our conference gets better ratings and our conference makes more money and therefore that somehow means that we are better. 
<laughs> now, part of this is because all this money's coming in and they're not giving it to the players. So it has to go into something. That's one of the reasons that's happening. But there is an element of we spend the most we want the most, we consume the most, we do the most. There's something about that in college football specifically. The NFL has more of a higher level capitalist idea, almost like your Brooks Brother Republican, which is, I think, maybe perhaps just as nefarious, but certainly wears a nicer blazer. It's, it's weird, right? Because it's capitalism and socialism at the same time to make it work. Yes. Oh, totally. But for college football, it is just... Wild West. It's as close to Ayn Randyism as I suppose you, you'd possibly come up with. And there is pride people taking their college football teams that is independent of their success on the field. And so much of it is about money. So I would argue this bowl system that they have right now is actually the perfect college football system. Not the best one, not the platonic ideal of best for humanity, but the best representation of what this sport is. Remember when the playoff happened, we were like, people aren't going to care about the Bulls anymore. Why are we having the Bulls anymore? And for the record, the only people that don't care about the Bulls anymore, huh, turns out our players and coaches are the right. only ones that don't care about the Bulls. But fans, we will take that middling product. We will take it. And I have to tell you, Purdue and Tennessee, two incredibly boring teams to watch throughout this season. The only time I paid attention to either one of them was when they played my teams of Illinois or Georgia. But when they played in that bowl game, when it was the, between Christmas and New Year's and there wasn't a lot going on, Yep. And my beautiful, wonderful children, I'm so glad to have in my house, were home and needed to be entertained. It was wonderful. And that game was incredible. And I had a great time. And I was texting friends about how much fun that game was. When you take a step back from it, this season between Christmas and New Year's, there are NFL games in this, but it's owned by college football. And it makes a lot of sense then that this is their time to shine. I wouldn't say they covered themselves in glory, but as you said, they made a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, right. I think they'd rather take that. Absolutely. And I brought his name up earlier as a joke, but I really want to address Kirk Herbstreet's yeah. you know, comments straight on. Yes. This idea that these young men are making smart business decisions based upon the finite number of years they get an opportunity to make that kind of money and have that kind of stature in society. The idea that they don't love their sport because they didn't play this insignificant bowl game is ridiculous. I just don't understand. If you don't make it to the playoff, how is it meaningless to yeah. play football and compete? Isn't that what we do as right. football players? We we compete. So yeah. I, I don't know if cha I don't know if changing and expanding it yeah. is going to ch change anything. I really don't. I think this era of player just doesn't love football. As we said, these bowl games are now just about making money for everyone else, for other people. And these young men are making decisions in order to make money for themselves and their families and maybe prayerfully create some generational wealth. And the idea that you would use your platform to berate these young men for being capitalist and suggest they don't love the sport because they're being capitalist while you're showing mayo being drizzled on coaches is absolutely preposterous to me. <laughs> Yeah. What would Vince Lombardi say if he was able to see Mayo being <laughs> dumped on coaches between two six and six teams? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that's an excellent. Wow. Just to talk about the Herbstreit thing for a moment. Another thing that happened since we've talked last was John Madden died. And yes. one of the things about John Madden that I really always liked is something that I think is the opposite of what happened to Herbstreit. And frankly, the opposite of what happens to so many 
people that have this kind of platform as the voice of their sport, which is as they go on longer and longer, they lose touch with what made people want to listen in the first place. And they start to become more entrenched and more obsessed with securing their own power than necessarily speaking mm-hmm. for the athletes and even coaches that they used to be. Because I remember when Herb Street came on, he was this like young, charismatic guy who seemed to really yeah. understand. He was funny and he was interesting. Yeah. And I even liked him, even though he was from Ohio State. Yeah, he was good. <laughs> and now it feels like he's, for whatever thing that he happens to be advertising at the time, kind of becomes this cranky old guy. But you see this across the board, right? Like I remember thinking John Smoltz wasn't bad when he first came on. And now all he does is complain about the game. A-Rod, Tony Romo has kind of gone this way. And there is something about that platform that makes you lose touch with not just the people that are playing the game, but the joy of experiencing the game, which to me was another reason that John Madden was so great, is he never lost that. Remember when he used to do the all-Madden team the week between the conference championship games and the Super Bowl? There's one with Jim McMahon before Super Bowl 20, and McMahon's wearing like this dopey bear's hat with flaps around his ears and crazy sunglasses, and looks like completely hungover, like he has no interest in being there at all. But (laughs) Madden just gets the biggest kick out of him. I've always said that if there was one guy that I've seen this year in the last couple of years that I could coach, it would be it would be Jim McMahon. Yeah, I think a lot of times we've just taken the fun out of the game. And of course, Jim puts it back in. He just thinks it's hilarious. He's just having so much fun. There's a joy to it. Whereas you would imagine someone like a Romo or a John Smoltz or a Herb Street being like, well, that guy's not respecting the game. And right. to me, watching that Herb Street thing, which was as awful as you say, and really, it really felt like almost a Rubicon moment a little bit for Herb Street. If he doesn't realize that changed how people saw him, he should, because I think it did. It reminded you that Madden never had stuff like that. Madden was a guy that everybody loved pretty much from start to finish. Rest in peace. All right, Will, let's move on to our next big topic, which is who is the most media savvy athlete of them all? No, I don't have a response to Kareem at all. Um, and if you saw the post and you read the tag, you know, you literally honestly asking, help me out. Help me kind of figure it all out. While we all trying to figure this pandemic out, we all trying to figure out COVID and, you know, the new trend, the new strand and, you know, in the flu, I think people forgot about the flu. People like literally forgot about the flu during these times. Like that's still going around. It's, it's flu season. So people have forgot about the flu. People have forgot about common codes. Um, that happens, you know, especially with a lot of our kids that's in school. Uh, my daughter's in first grade. So a lot of these kids are getting like common codes and getting the flu. Um, so, um, but no, I don't have any response to, uh, to Kareem um, um, at all. That was LeBron James at a recent press conference, refusing to comment about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar saying that LeBron had, quote, damaged his own legacy, end quote, by posting a meme on Instagram that equated COVID with the common cold and the flu to his over 50 million followers. Some people were angry that LeBron disrespected a legend, while others thought LeBron was sincere and wanting more information about the virus. But regardless, Will, this small incident got me thinking about how athletes handle the media in this present age of constant scrutiny, instantaneous reaction, and nonstop judgment. So let's get into it, shall we? Who are the athletes that are navigating this minefield the best and are the most media savvy of them all? I think it kind of depends on what you want. Right. Like on one hand, you've got someone like LeBron, who I think has proven successful at 
diving into conversations when he wants to, but generally staying out of it otherwise, like we kind of saw with Kareem. And you got someone like Kevin Durant, who will start a fight with anyone any, any time he has the opportunity <laughs> to. And listen, sometimes it's great. I like it when he dunks on Skip Bayless as much as everybody else does, but I also don't know if that's the best use of Kevin Durant's time. I don't think it's the best use of my time to do that, so I certainly don't think it's the best use of Kevin Durant's time. But I think it's an interesting topic because young athletes use social media different than older athletes do, and media members do it differently than normal people do. And so the way I tend to always use social media is to be like, if I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. I feel like you've got to be true to yourself at a certain level. Right. Pretending to be something that you're not, I would argue not only feels very unnatural to me, but leads to this kind of performativeness we see in social media where, what's the old Bonnegat line? Well, you are what you pretend to be, so be careful of what you will pretend to be. And I feel like that's kind of led to that in social media a little bit. But I feel like the athletes that do this right are the ones who are truest to themselves for better or for even sometimes for worse. It's a question I've been thinking about since we came up with this ideal over, you know, the weekend, because you're right. It's about what exactly is the goal of your interaction with the media? Is it to move product? Is it to be focusing on an issue? Is it simply to celebrate the sport that you're an athlete in? Why are you on social media or why are you interacting with media, period, is a big part of the answer as to who's doing it best. And I would think that the athletes who are more focused in on one aspect is the athlete that tends to be doing it the best. And that leads me to some of these numbers that I see when it comes to followers, right? Mm -hmm. Cristiano Ronaldo, whose politics I really don't know, <laughs> right? Whose interest in causes outside of football I really don't know, has 381 million followers on Instagram. <laughs> That's a lot. That's more than I have. That is three times the number of followers that LeBron James has, whose politics we do know, right. whose products we do know. Is it fair to say Ronaldo's doing it right because he has so many followers and he's keeping himself, let's face it, out of any controversial conversation? Or is it LeBron James, who's not afraid of controversy like the one he has right now with Kareem and the meme that he used? as well as politics, we know that as well, as well as pushing his own products and his own interests and the teams that he's played for. The answer to this question isn't necessarily who do you get in a fight with or how you handle those fights. The answer to the question is, are people following you on the journeys that you've decided to go on? And for that, I think LeBron James is very successful because he has decided to go on all these different paths with his social media presence, politics, culture, celebrating family, celebrating himself. <laughs> he's not afraid to do any of that. And he still has well over 100 million people right there with him. And the simple fact that he did not respond to Kareem means he's very much aware of the fact that people will use him to try to get a hold of some of the popularity that he's corralled. And he's very careful in terms of who he decides to share some of that space with. So I think he's probably doing it the best. I don't think athletes who don't share their personal politics or who aren't talking about things that interest them are doing it best. I think what they're doing is avoiding losing followers, which in my opinion is more cowardly and less interesting.
I was thinking about someone that I think it does it really well. It's someone that's actually in the top, I think the top like 10 with, to at least among male athletes uh, with uh, Twitter followers. It's Steph Curry. LeBron wants to be liked. Of course he wants to be liked. But he's he also liked. more willing to be divisive than, say, yep. Ronaldo. <laughs> for example. Right. But Seth Curry clearly has a personality of someone that wants to be liked. He's an active troll. He'll have a little fun in the middle of the game, but Seth Curry is never responding to Skip Bayless, ever. That's not happening. But also, he has things he wants to promote. Holy moly is great. I love holy moly. And there are political aspects where he was outspoken about not having the Warriors go to the White House. But at the end of the day, Steph Curry can tweet something and no one at Fox News is going to yell at him. Right. I would argue that's the middle zone of Ronaldo, who's never going to say anything. Right. I would argue LeBron's probably doing it best. I mean, forget the number of people that he has. LeBron makes news when right. he tweets in a way that Steph Curry doesn't. But Steph Curry does not seem to want to. And I think that comes back to that sort of idea of what you want, which I think brings us inevitably to Kevin Durant, who is, <laughs> is someone who does What does the, he want, Will? What, I mean, that, why, that's, why that's, do you think he's using social media? We understand why LeBron does, right? right? We understand why Steph does. I honestly don't know why Kevin does, because I'm not sure how he's trying to use it. I wrote a feature about him for New York Magazine that was never published because it was supposed to come out on March 12th, 2020. I don't remember what God, bumped what it off. On the yeah, I don't year. know what bumped it off the front page, but oh, it ended crazy. up not running. But I asked him <laughs> about social media specifically and asked him, why do you do it? What are you trying to accomplish? I seen him go after like Ethan Strauss, for example, like who, <laughs> like who is more than a random guy, but is not Stephen A. Smith, for example. What is the point of going after someone like that? Or even just a random person person or whoever. And he said, well, the thing is, I don't think of those as I'm getting in a fight with a rando. I think of it not dissimilar than a press conference. 25 years ago, the only time anyone asked you questions when you were at a press conference or doing an interview. This is how I'm answering interview questions. I'm on my phone and I'm responding to people because they're a reporter just as much as you are a reporter. And I said, well, thanks. But, <laughs> but more to the point- Ethan's very good at his job. Yeah, I don't way. mean Ethan. I don't mean Ethan. I mean the random people. Ethan's better than I am. But uh, more to the point, he did not make a delineation between professional reporter and and person on Twitter asking him questions. His argument is that he is accountable to them both equally. And therefore, when we see him responding to some random person who is not to the level of Ethan Strauss, but a random person <laughs> on Twitter, he feels like he owes that person an answer just as much as he owes Ethan Strauss or Adrian Wojnarowski or whoever. I enjoy engaging with the fans. You know, I used to take it personal. It was a point where I used to think that people were trying to personally attack me through my social media. That's only because they Especially are. If I... <laughs> they are. But I realized, like, these people don't know me at all. And a lot of people are excited to have that interaction and just want to somehow get some attention some way. I don't think he's right <laughs> about that. <laughs> and I also would argue, Shock. forget just the press aspect of it. Frankly, it makes him look thin-skinned. It does. It makes him look like he can't handle criticism. And this is probably less fair, but it makes him look like he's focused on the wrong things. And frankly, someone that's had these random burner accounts that have been busted in the past. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. that's the first thing that came to mind was like going, okay, well, if you view us all as reporters, then why do you have a burner account? Yeah. You can't have a burner presence at the microphone at a press conference. That's not just you. Yeah, <laughs> not, just a, not just a burner account, but a burner account that is really, really in support of Kevin Durant. <laughs> like, like a, one that just is really, really, mm. on, just randomly. Who else in the New York area used to promote themselves with fake... PR people. Hmm. John Barron. Who John could forget Barron. the infamous John Barron, who wrestled a 
despair away from a woman being attacked in the New York City cab and leaked it to the New York Post that Donald Trump did it. Our president had a fake PR person name and would call newspapers. And would change his voice slightly. Did you ever hear the audio of it? Yes. (laughs) And they voted for him anyway. I know. Fuck it. I'm leaving. I know. Uh, But Kevin Durant, he would argue that this is how people are using social media. He feels this is a way of not elevating himself the way that LeBron does, or I think going back farther, the way that Michael Jordan did, who I think really set a certain media tone back in the day of being all things to all people. Derek Jeter was really good at this too, of trying to be generic. And that's clearly what Ronaldo does. I think it's what Neymar generally does to where Ronaldo has actually had some sexual assault allegations. There were things that Ronaldo theoretically would have had to answer for that I'm not sure that he did, (laughs) to be entirely (laughs) honest. And I, I would say that Durant, by doing that, I see what his idea is, but at a certain level, I think it it hurts him. Whereas when LeBron steps in on things, it always feels strategic. And actually a somewhat similar way than Jordan, except Jordan would never step in on anything. <laughs> and we've seen this from LeBron's career forever, right? He recognized, I have this big platform. How do I not just use it, but how do I use it wisely? And I feel like Durant does not always use it wisely, but he uses it the way he wants to, which is its own kind of honesty, I suppose. No, no, it, it is. I don't really follow Kevin a lot because of some of the reasons that you said. Mm-hmm. I don't want my heroes to be defending themselves against randos yeah. at home in their mom's basement. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just, or I even just, in the locker room, like, or like, like or, room. Or wherever you do it. Every single time I see Kevin Durant do that, I want to be like, man, you could be getting a massage, you could be partying, you could be doing literally anything better than this right now. I'm so close to viewing you as the best player in the game. And not that my views impact how he plays or even how he views himself, but just my personal interaction with him is that I don't want to be in awe of a dude that's arguing with some 12-year-old. That's fair. (laughs) You know, I just I just I I just don't. It's like finding out that Millie Vanilli didn't actually sing. I love those songs, damn it. Those songs are good, by the way. Completely under still somebody sang them. And they're still saying them exactly. But but it was just sort of like going Oh, man. <laughs> you know what reminds me of? It reminds me of on The Sopranos, when the guy from the New York family goes over to The Sopranos' place and Tony's grilling and he's wearing uh-huh. shorts. And after the party, the guy brings him aside and says, the Don doesn't wear shorts. The Don doesn't wear shorts. And that's kind of how I feel. Right. If you're Kevin Durant, you don't, you don't wear shorts. You are one right. of the best players I've ever seen in my entire life. I know. Why do you need to do this Why? at all? He, he really does say that he's got an ethos behind it. I think it's thin skin. Yeah, it feels like a justification. Yeah. It definitely feels like thin skin for me. And I'm not sure how much of it existed for him prior to going to Golden State. But certainly, once he got to Golden State, there was a different sort of interaction with the media and with the public. And I don't think he's actually come back from that or has reverted back to the OKC version. Or maybe just simply he's evolving and we don't get to see people evolve very often like that. He only played, what, one year at Texas? Yeah. If I was tweeting at 19 and 20 versus tweeting at almost 50, (laughs) there's no telling how many changes you would have witnessed through that time period 
publicly on social media. And so maybe some of that's part of it as well. He wants to do it, you know, so be it. And maybe we're wrong. We're old. And maybe this is what people are going to do forward. It's possible. Maybe. You know, I, I think the other part of this conversation is that there really aren't any women's whose voices move the needle on social media like that. And I don't know what that says globally, but I know domestically, it just sort of feeds in this misogynist sort of attitude that we have about women in sports anyway, that it's inferior, that there are certain places they don't belong. The great ESPN football columnist, writer, think child, brilliant, Mina Kimes, just posted some really rude, sexist note that some rando sent her about girls talking about football and blah, 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 blah. And actually had the nerve to say that some of the players feel emasculated talking football with her, which only was an indictment of the fragility of masculinity, more so than how brilliant she is to talk about football. But I just think that this media conversation with athletes also brings home the fact that there's still this barrier for women in sports, period. And even Serena Williams, she barely has a tenth of what LeBron James has <laughs> on Twitter. She's been at this longer than LeBron. You certainly can argue they both are the best in their sport of all time. Certainly can make the argument that both sports are equally as global. You can even make the argument that tennis might be even more global when you talk about some of the other countries that doesn't have a, any basketball presence, but has a tennis presence. But she can't seem to garner the same sort of media attention or at least followers of people that want to pay attention to her. And I think that also speaks to this conversation that we're having and how sexism plays into it. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk with David Wallace-Wells about whether or not the new CDC COVID quarantine guidelines are the sports world's golden ticket. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, LZ, we're back. As cases continue to surge around the nation, the CDC now defending its new guidelines for those who are asymptomatic or have been exposed to COVID-19. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky saying they're not recommending asymptomatic people first test negative before coming out of a five-day isolation period, as rapid tests may not give a clear picture of how contagious someone is at that stage. 
That was an ABC News report about the new CDC COVID-19 isolation and quarantine guidelines announced on December 27th that cut in half the previously recommended time that people should stay secluded if they either get infected with COVID or are exposed to the virus. This news is a boon for sports leagues, which now will get their athletes back and playing much faster than before. For example, the unvaccinated quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, Carson Wentz, went on the COVID list last Tuesday, but was taking snaps on Sunday because he was asymptomatic after five days. And in the past, he would have missed the game regardless. Many experts, however, are debating just how safe these new guidelines really are. So here to help us understand their impact on the sports world and our lives is New York Magazine's editor-at-large, David Wallace-Wells, who, in addition to writing the book The Uninhabitable Earth, has done a ton of reporting on COVID, including a great piece on Omicron for New York Magazine just last week. David, I'm curious your thoughts about the CDC guidance and whether sports has been maybe too craven to embrace that, or do you think that it's a reasonable expectation for maybe people of that demographic and age group? Well, I think Omicron is really, really challenging to all of us in the sort of protocols we've developed over the last couple of years, because the cases are piling up. The growth is insane. It seems likely to be a relatively short wave. But during that period of time, it's going to be the case that in major metropolitan cities, you're talking about 20, 30, 50 percent of the population getting infected. And that means that anything that you developed as a policy a year ago, when in the absolute worst moment, something like 5 percent of the city was infected, just won't apply. Either every single institution and organization is going to have to shut down from hospitals and schools through sports teams and all the rest, or we're going to just have to change our policies on the fly to allow those institutions and organizations to continue operating. And it's particularly complicating because it seems to be a less severe variant. It's causing less severe disease, which means that each case is less dramatic and important. But at the same time, even most people who are generally anxious, frustrated, exhausted, ready to get on with their lives, they're not totally ready to treat a COVID infection like it's nothing and go around <laughs> acting like it's okay to spread it to other people. So we're in a sort of weird space where like our old rules don't apply, but it's not exactly clear what the new rules should be. The real problem here is like, it's happening so fast that we haven't really been able to think through a lot of these questions. The CDC, you know, the changing recommendations that they made, it seems obvious to me that they rushed through that and didn't really think it through. It seems crazy that they would have announced a shortening of the quarantine period without at least preparing a pre-buttle to those scientists who would say that it wasn't sufficient. They thought, we don't really have the testing. We don't want to impose the same restrictions that we imposed a year ago, but we don't want to turn all the way to zero. So let's meet somewhere in the middle and say, probably most of the infectiousness happens right at the beginning of the illness. So therefore, let's cut the quarantine period in half. I think probably if people stick to that protocol, that will reduce the spread of the disease somewhat significantly, but nowhere near zero. On the other hand, I think it's worth keeping in mind, just big picture, that none of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we've tried throughout this pandemic, from total lockdowns to more focused isolation and quarantine to contact tracing and mask wearing, none of those things have actually brought the spread to zero. So we're choosing between approaches that are imperfect. This one is probably going to let more cases through than a 10-day quarantine. But at the level of social risk and what we're doing to the society, I think it makes some sense, given what we know about the severity of Omicron, to turn the dial of restriction 
back a little and be a little less scared of this disease than we were with previous variants. You know, I think there are a couple of different questions to ask, and I still think it's really dramatically underappreciated by the American public. This is very much a disease of the elderly. Teenagers have died. People in their 20s and 30s have died. I don't mean to say that that hasn't happened, but the risk faced by people in those age groups is so vanishingly small compared to the risk faced by people in their 70s and 80s and 90s. And most of the reason why we were so universal in our application of restrictions last year was because we didn't think we could protect the vulnerable in a more focused way. What it means for sports, when you're talking about the health of these individual players, I really, really think that the risks there are tiny. They're incredibly healthy people to begin with. This is not a disease that we should be living in mortal fear of. So from that perspective, I think that there's some wisdom in trying to encourage a continuation of a social phenomenon or whatever you want to call sports, a normalizing feature of American life to carry the rest of the country through it when the people actually participating are not themselves at very high risk. What it means as a signaling mechanism, I think is a little more complicated. We're probably talking about a month or two month period where a lot of American life is disrupted, maybe not exactly by huge amounts of severe illness and death, although there will be some of that, but more just that our schools are understaffed, our hospitals get understaffed, our airline, you know, all these things that we depend on are going to be thrown into some disarray. And in that context, whether it makes more sense for the league to be standing down in solidarity or serving a sort of unifying, mm -hmm. like, we're going to get through this together function, I think is an open question, but I think it's certainly not unreasonable I wouldn't describe it as craven. I think it's not unreasonable that they're moving forward and saying, let's just man up and keep playing. So we're heading toward what is easily the biggest sporting event in this country, and that's the Super Bowl. And people like to host Super Bowl parties, of course. Based upon your reporting and where we are right now as a country, culturally and attitude-wise about Omicron, what are some of the things that people can do because we can't stop them from hosting Super Bowl parties. They're going to do it. So I'm more about solutions and minimizing and keeping people focusing on healthier choices. What are some of the things you and your reporting has shown that would be the healthiest alternatives if you're going to be watching playoff games together, if you're planning on hosting a Super Bowl party? The one thing that we've done that is really effective, both at limiting spread and limiting severe disease, is vaccination. So I know that most people have made up their minds about this already. It is by far the most helpful guard against both spread and serious disease. And I think something that many people who aren't paying quite as close attention to the, the scientific news as maybe I am may not appreciate is that what we've been calling booster shots are really, really critical here. I think on to some degree, it's been a little even misleading to be calling these things vaccines. It does seem like the science is suggesting that to really keep your protection robust, getting a booster shot, the FDA says every five months now. I think the science is actually that something more on the window of th every three or four months would be helpful. And so people should try to be as up to date with their boosters as they can be. And even to start thinking of this not as a, a single shot vaccine, but like a sort of ongoing prophylactic program where you get a shot every few months and you're relatively safe for that period. In terms of like day of party, you know, I do think that rapid antigen testing is really useful. These are tests that aren't quite as accurate in showing if you're actually sick with COVID, but they're incredibly accurate 
in showing whether you're infectious with COVID. And they give you a window of about 24 to 36 hours where if you test negative on this test, you can be quite confident that over that period of 24 to 36 hours, you will not infect other people, even if you had a recent PCR positive test. If you're able to do that, I think that's a really good guide. I also think as is the case with all these variants, if you're able to do something outside rather than indoors, that's better. If you're indoors, try to keep the windows open, air moving, Mask wearing helps too, although personally, I think the efficacy has been somewhat overstated, but it does make a difference. There's a big study that came out recently showing that it reduced the spread on an airplane, for instance, universal mask wearing by 30%. So it helps, but it's not a total game changer. When you're doing those things inside, try to take some of the precautions I talked about, which aren't that hard or burdensome to implement. Just as a quick follow-up, how does being an Arizona Cardinals fan impact your ability to attract COVID? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a follow-up. That's just a, just a dig. <laughs> I'm a Cardinals fan. He's just being mean. So NBA commissioner Adam Silver kind of hinted during a press conference where he talked about how they were going to deal with COVID. He didn't say explicitly, but the way that he talked about had a little bit of vibe of, you know what? Sports is going to have to live with this the way the rest of the world is going to have to live with this. There's going to be someone that is currently COVID positive playing in a game. There surely already has been. There probably was one yesterday. And what Silver was hinting at is we're going to have to sort of live with this. If we can't learn to live with this, we're never going to be able to do anything. I didn't sense that there was a big pushback to Silver on that idea. But do you feel and do the experts feel that that is irresponsible? And you use the word craven. I, I mean, you use the word craven. I was just I was arguing with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you for putting my work to me back. But would you say not craven, but something less than craven, something a less dynamic <laughs> word than craven uh, than, than, uh, than you would say? I actually think that the kind of test here really matters. And I do think, especially in the context of the MBA, to stop testing people who are not symptomatic with this test that shows whether you have any virus in your body at all. Because especially with Omicron, probably a large percentage of the public will be positive at some point over this, the course of this month or eight weeks. Many of them won't be infectious at all. Many of them will only be infectious for a very short amount of time. And a test that picks up the presence of any virus at all and identifies them as positive and then subjects them to any kind of quarantine or isolation period, even if it's just a five-day period, I think may be too restrictive, maybe too disruptive. But I think that's where the rapid antigen tests are so useful because what they test for is infectiousness. And that means that you could be COVID positive for two weeks and never actually be a risk to infect anyone around you. And if that's the case, there's really no reason for you to be restricted. Personally, I think that sports leagues should think about that model. I, and I don't know, is the NBA doing PCR testing or are they doing antigen testing? Do you know? It's my understanding that they're doing PCR testing. Yeah. I just don't think we should be doing much PCR testing at all. If I were running the NBA, even knowing the health risks are as low as they are to the players on the court, and even to some degree to much of the coaching staff and support staff around these teams, I would feel uncomfortable sending someone out onto the court without a mask, breathing on other people who was antigen positive and who was infectious. Because the number of links in the chain from that positive test to someone who could actually be vulnerable 
it's not that many. And Omicron is so infectious that it can make that jump pretty quickly. But if I was confident that everybody on the court was antigen negative and not infectious, I wouldn't care if they were also all COVID positive on PCR tests. So my advice to Silver <laughs> and any other commissioner, and indeed really anybody running any organization of any kind, would be to basically swap their PCR test protocols for antigen protocols. Okay, last question. The governor of Colorado, Polis, his public message has basically been, if you're vaccinated, go on with your life now. You've done your part. His numbers are through the roof. <laughs> his numbers are absolutely through the roof in Colorado. Is there a sense among professionals or even in the community, the idea that Omicron, because it's so infectious, because it's so everywhere, and it's still early on, will lead closer to the end of the pandemic, or at least the end of the restrictions we've had from the pandemic? You know, Jared Polis advising people who have been who are well vaccinated up to date on their boosters, not worrying too much about the disease. I actually think that there's something kind of ugly about this impulse. We have probably as many as 100 million Americans who are not vaccinated. They're vulnerable to severe disease. We also have old people who are vaccinated who are still vulnerable to severe disease and possibly death, not as much as they would be if they were unvaccinated. But someone who's 85 and vaccinated has the same fatality risk now as someone who is 55 and unvaccinated. And I think that a lot of these calculations underplay how many people remain vulnerable, also sort of overstate how much of that vaccine reluctance is ideological. The truth is that education levels and wealth levels are almost as good a predictor of whether you have gotten a vaccine or not as partisanship. There are a lot of those people. It's not just Tucker Carlson viewers who are railing against the vaccines who are unvaccinated. And I think, especially before Omicron, we had this curious fact that was true in the U.S. and not true in almost all of our peer countries, which is that the vaccination rate actually didn't change what's called the case fatality rate for the whole country. So the proportion of cases that ended in death was the same during the Delta wave after mass vaccination as it was in the winter surge of early 2021 before anybody was vaccinated. And what that means functionally is that while the vaccines helped a lot, also Delta was a lot worse. And so they sort of fought to a draw. And that means at the individual level that the mathematical relationship that your individual case might have to an ultimate death was the same in the Delta wave as it was before <laughs> vaccines. Even if you felt yourself more protected, you probably had the same amount of responsibility to stop yourself from spreading it to other people as you did before anybody was vaccinated. And especially before Omicron hit, whenever I heard exhausted cosmopolitan liberals being like, well, I'm vaccinated, everybody I know is vaccinated, why do I still have to be worrying about these restrictions? Well, you know, we still have like a thousand people dying a day. That's a pace of like 400,000 people a year, which is more than died in 2020. This is still an ongoing pandemic and every single case is still causing that amount of suffering. We should be worrying about those people too, not just disregarding their lives because they happen not to have been vaccinated. Now, I think you're right though, that Omicron does change this in a couple of profound ways. One is that it's likely to cause significantly less severe illness. We think it's probably something on the order of half as severe or maybe even three quarters less severe than Delta, which would make it maybe as severe or maybe even a little less severe than the original, what's called the wild type of the disease that came out of Wuhan. So there's that. Every individual case is going to lead to less death than it did before. And that is significant. And then there's the question of protection offered by an Omicron infection going forward. The phrase herd immunity, that's one way of thinking about it. Another way is endemicity, which is like, at what point are enough people protected against at least severe disease that we start treating this 
like the other diseases we live with rather than a totally novel threat. It'll still be probably quite significant. It'll probably be killing more people than the flu every year, but it'll be killing people on the order of the flu, in the neighborhood of the flu, not like we've seen over the last couple of years. And I don't think anybody knows for sure what the impact of Omicron on that calculus really is. I think there have been some studies over the last couple of weeks suggesting that Omicron infection does protect you somewhat better against other variants than other variants protected you against Omicron, much better than we feared. And that the vaccines, while they don't do a very good job of protecting against infection with Omicron, do, especially if you've had a recent booster, do a very good job of protecting you against severe disease. So I do think it's likely that we end up on the other side of this wave sometime at the end of January or early February with significantly more immunological protection in the population against COVID, particularly against um, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. It seems likely to me that we're not going to end up at herd immunity because these either infections or vaccinations aren't perfect at preventing infection. They're just very good at protecting against severe disease. But we do end up at something like endemicity, where <laughs> mm-hmm. if we were continuing to do surveillance testing for years, there would still be tons of people testing positive for COVID going forward. But we just wouldn't see many of them developing anything more than like a mild mm-hmm. cold. This is going to sound gruesome, but we probably see tens of thousands of people dying every year from it, which is something on the order of like two to three times as many people as died die of the flu, but nothing like the 400,000 that we've been seeing die over the last couple of years. And at that point, I do think our society is going to take a breath, maybe walk away from the surveillance project and sort of choose to treat it as an issue to think about for experts to worry over, but for the average citizen to basically treat as part of the natural background noise of our lives and not something worse. And I do think it's quite plausible that Omicron gets us pretty quickly there in terms of how much it adds to our immune wall, which means we may well be coming into the spring really feeling like we're on the other side of this generally and not just waiting for the next wave with sort of bated breath. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. And uh, thank you for uh, making me feel better about the spring. If only there would be baseball when it happens, but uh, doesn't look like that might not be happening. Yeah, exactly. Fingers crossed. David Wallace-Wells, editor at large at New York Magazine's book is The Uninhabitable Earth. Thank you for your time. Uh, read everything David writes. He's very, very smart. Thanks, guys. Great to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Okay, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. You know, first, just an apology to the women involved, um, the women that in a couple of cases were assaulted, and, and not just to them, but their, their families, because this is not something that just is an incident and then it's over. It, it stays with people, it stays with families, and, and I'm just sorry I didn't see it. That was Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban in 2018 on ESPN's The Jump, apologizing after a report in Sports Illustrated and a subsequent investigation found multiple incidents of sexual harassment, intimidation, and misogyny in the team's business office. While Cuban was not implicated, he did agree to pay $10 million to women's causes and overhaul the Mavs' corporate culture in response to the findings. 22 years ago this week, Cuban bought a controlling interest in the Mavericks for $285 million starting one of the most high-profile business careers we've ever seen. But even though the Mavs won a title in 2011 and Cuba is now a star on Shark Tank, scandal, controversy, and dysfunction do seem to follow him. So, Will, as we assess the life and times of one Mark Cuban, is he good 
or is he just plain lucky? Certainly the way he made his money was pretty lucky. I think he gets forgotten sometimes that he was early on in the game. He was the one that realized, oh, wait, people living in San Francisco might want to listen to Cubs games on the internet. Let's put that together. And that became broadcast.com. And that he sold to Yahoo. Yahoo never known to make a bad investment. Never. And so uh, it all it all kind of turned out for him. And he was kind of living the dream, right? Tech bros now, they're see more tech than bro. He was bro. He did what we all kind of imagined we would do if we suddenly just had a bunch of money. I'm going to buy a sports team and I'm going to do all this stuff. And first, I think there was an appeal to that. But I do think that the culture of that time, that kind of bro culture, inevitably seeped its way into the Mavericks organization. We heard that clip at the beginning, him kind of apologizing. I feel like he got away with that. (laughs) That was 2018. I don't know if you've noticed, but like a whole bunch of shit has happened since 2018. And it's been been hard. It doesn't feel like when people talk about the Mavericks, they talk about some pretty horrific things that happened with that franchise that Cuban was directly involved in. Right. In a similar way that Dan Snyder was very connected to what was happening with Washington. Remember that stretch when... Right before the pandemic, people were dissatisfied with Biden or Harris or whoever was running. And you heard that, well, is Cuban going to run? He started picking fights with Trump on Twitter. To me, Cuban has always felt much more of a Trumpian figure in a lot of ways. And Teflon, to be honest, there's this idea that after 2018, the culture changed in Dallas. I don't know. It was a big athletic story just last year about how much of a mess the Mavericks front office is and how there's really toxic stuff going on there. I think what Cuban has done is tried to like separate himself from the stuff that looks bad and connect himself to the stuff that looks good in a way that is impressive and I would argue downright Trumpian, but should not necessarily make us believe that he is this benevolent figure or this figure of just pure fun that I think he likes to try to portray himself as. The great Kenny Chesney. Yes, I know. I don't quote Kenny Chesney often, Mm. Will, but (laughs) in this situation, I think it's apropos. He has a song where he says he was at a bar at two, went home with a 10 and woke up with a six. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's kind of what Mark Cuban is. Mark Cuban was really hot at two o'clock in the morning compared to everybody else that was left in the bar. And now that we've woken up, we look and go, oh, he's not a 10, he's actually a six. I was just comparing him to everyone that was around him. (laughs) And that's how I feel about him as a sports owner. When he first burst into the scene, he was a breath of fresh air because of what we were comparing him to. All the other owners, right? But now we're comparing him to just people. And we're like, oh, you're not that cool. You're not that progressive. You're not that, I don't want to say smart because he is smart, but I would say he's not as thoughtful as perhaps we thought he was because we were comparing him to his peers and not necessarily comparing him to just everyone else. As we learn more and more about him, we're realizing that he may have been cool for a sports owner, but he wasn't universally just a cool person. He wasn't a person who really cared about these issues. We just assumed he did because he had a different vibe than everyone else that was considered a peer. And he's been able to nestle in that sweet spot for a very long time. And you're right. Clearly, he got away with a lot of stuff in 2018. And that apology was weak as hell. I mean, we're seeing not just Me Too, because I think 
that has a, a weird sort of bullying connotation to it because it's not just about Me Too activists running around and saying, we're going to take down men. You, 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 right. Yeah, I think that's an oversimplification. I think what we are seeing, though, is a greater interest being placed on accountability. And regardless of your gender, because, oh, by the way, Governor Cuomo took down women and men with his downfall. It wasn't just all men. Women helped him, too. And I think that we're beginning to see Mark Cuban being looked at with a much more holistic and thoughtful sort of approach. And we're just saying, oh, yeah, we bought into this bit way back in the day, you shooting against your basketball players and hanging out with Dirk and Steve and discovering HGH or whatever the hell you were on <laughs> and wearing all these tight shirts and looking like you were yeah. trying to get fit for whatever reasons. Like we rolled with that because we hadn't really seen that before. But now we realize we have seen it before, just not with an owner. It is just always with some other guy. But you're still that guy. Yeah. Mark Cuban's 63 years old now. <laughs> it's weird. We think of him as younger than that, but he's not. Right. He's 63 years old. I would argue as he gets older, he's given off more Papa John Sky vibes than I think necessarily than he might have before. And even that hanging out with Dirk and hanging out with Nash, that feels A, a little overblown, B... I don't know about you, but I don't hear a ton of stories of like, oh, yeah, the Mavs players just love hanging out with Cubans. Oh, they love Cubes. I guarantee you. I still hear that about Jerry, though. I yeah, still hear true. that about Jerry. That's true. Jerry may be timeless. He's the Keith Richards of creepy <laughs> sports owners. I think that the way that Cuban was ahead of his time was not in technology. You can argue maybe HD because he was pushing for HD early on, but it's not like yep. HDNet became this massive thing. He, however, was ahead of his time in the same way that, frankly, Trump was ahead of his time. He's really, really great at branding. And he's terrific going on television and looking like a business person who understands <laughs> business things. And really, he is playing a role in the same way that the American Idol judges are playing a role, or Trump was playing a role on The Apprentice. and Or in the White House. Yes. And, and, yes, and, <laughs> and literally every other thing he's done in his life in general. All cards on the table here. I don't necessarily have personally the best history with Cuban. And I think a lot of that is because I have found that the person that is on public display is very different than the person if you were to deal with them in any sort of private manner. The irony of this, like all great marketers, Cuban is the one that is always claiming to be transparent. He's like, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, you don't get it. That feels like another branding thing. That's why whenever he was trying to start feuds with Trump, I was like, oh, of course you are. Right. This is the role we play. It's all professional wrestling. He's been involved with professional wrestling. It's all kayfabe, right? And it feels like that act when you're 63 and are just really just a television character, well, maybe it'll work for me. Maybe if people don't like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, if that idiot Trump can pull it off, maybe I can pull it off. But it feels like the act has run a little, it's faded a little bit. I love your point about he was so different than the other sports owners that you couldn't help but feel cool. And, and I think that's true. I always think about this with Arthur Blank in the NFL. He right. is the nicest sports owner, but it still puts him in like the bottom 2% of people. <laughs> and, and I feel like that's kind of Cuban, right? Compared right. to Donald Sterling, he certainly seemed progressive and interesting and cool, but compared to almost anyone else on the planet, maybe less so. Not to say that it's not cool to name your boat the Fountainhead. 
I'm not saying that's not cool in the year 2021 to name your yacht after an Anne Rand novel. Very, very man of the people and very cool, Mark Cuban. I don't want to say that's not cool. That's very cool, Mark Cuban. Very that cool. should make everybody like you. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our games of the week. What do you got, LZ? There's only one game that matters to me, my friend, and I think you know what it is. I guess you don't. I'm just allowing you to have the dramatic moment of the reveal. My Los Angeles Rams, baby. Ooh. We get to lock up that division. Who would finish number two in that division? You guys were lucky to beat the Ravens. I thought you were going to lose the Ravens. It's so bitter. I know. Bitter is best for onions and lemons. Listen, they, my Arizona Cardinals <laughs> ended the losing streak last week. They did beat Dallas. Congratulations. They very well might play in the first round of the playoffs, which will be kind of entertaining. We could possibly play in the first round of the playoffs at SoFi. Yes. And the funny thing is, is that I'm actually going to the Cardinals game. <laughs> oh, you are? This Sunday? Yeah, I had promised friends that I would go with them to the Cardinals game months ago. And when I was thinking about seeing the Rams versus the 49ers to a chance to wrap up the division and quite possibly the number two overall seed, I was reminded that I was supposed to be going to the Cardinals game. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was like, damn it. It's possible Kyler Murray throws four passes in that game. We'll see what happens with the Rams. I think yeah. the presumption is that the Rams are going to win and the Cardinals will probably just kind of rest a little bit and not get Kyler Murray hurt. That's double your pleasure that you're going to see not only the wrong game, but the wrong game with the wrong players. Right. right. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's also an important game for the Rams, not just because of possible playoff seating in the division, but the Niners kind of have their number in terms of coaching, physicality, playing style. The last time these two teams faced each other, the 49ers just marched up and down the field and running game with very little resistance. And the Rams are kind of feeling themselves right now. We had our own three-game losing streak, and we've turned that around now with a five-game win streak. Matthew Stafford has been brilliant from much of that five-game win streak, and even the game that we almost lost against the Ravens, he managed to put together a game-winning drive. I think it was 75 yards or something like that. So... We're filling ourselves a little bit on both sides of the ball. If we were to lose this game, it's not just about possibly losing the division and losing the number two overall seed. You also plant doubt back in our minds. And so it's the game of the week for me, not just in terms of the outcome, in terms of wins and losses, but also the mind game. We beat the Niners at home comfortably, win that division. We're heading to the postseason very, very high on ourselves. We lose to the Niners. We're heading to the postseason with a question mark. What about you? Yeah, I remember the 49ers are playing for a playoff spot too. Yeah. They can very no, well. No, no, no. It's, it's a game. It's a real game, man. Yeah, they've got plenty to play for. <laughs> Mine is, of course, we've already mentioned it a couple of times in the podcast. It is George, Alabama in Indianapolis on Monday night. I feel like almost I'm hosting all of my Georgia friends because Indianapolis is an hour and a half from my hometown. I will be in my hometown all weekend. So I will get the feel and the very freezing temperatures that Georgia fans will not be able to uh, withstand. This is, of course, the second time that Alabama and Georgia have played in the national championship game. But it's obviously very different circumstances. That game was in Atlanta. Trump was at that game. Remember that? I don't remember Trump being at that game. It took security, took everyone like two hours to get through. People that paid like $2,000 for a ticket and got in halfway through the second quarter. Thanks, Brandon, or whatever, whatever uh, <laughs> they're saying over there. But that game, obviously much has been made about Kirby Smart trying to beat Nick Saban and so on. But really the major, major thing, Georgia had that game won. If you remember, it was second and 26. It was in overtime and it hits yep. that one play. And I wrote a piece for the late lamented sports on earth. I was writing to my Georgia fan friends, essentially saying as if they had just been in a car accident 
Let them know that you will heal. I know what this hurts. <laughs> I know everything's pain. You will walk through this. You will be able to move forward. Their history with Alabama is not just losing. It's losing in the most painful possible ways. It is the whole psyche of the Georgia football fan to not just always lose to Alabama, but to, to see Auburn win national championships and Tennessee yep. win national championships, even Georgia Tech yep. win national championships. In Florida, they are the team that never quite gets there. And now in the last few years, they clearly would have had one if it hadn't been for Alabama at some point. There is a lot of emotional health on the line for most <laughs> of my friends on Monday nights. We'll see how they all handle it afterward, but clearly that's the game of the week. And finally, Will, we know that there are always teams, executives, players, or officials messing up the sports. So let's <laughs> dive into this week's screw up, shall we? What is your blunder of the week? I actually kind of like the Baker Mayfield progressive ads. I feel like he's an unusually good actor for an athlete. He's clever, he's funny, and he doesn't have that Aaron Rodgers smugness to him. I kind of enjoy- He looks like he showers too. Yeah, yeah. he seems like an affable sort, but like his days as quarterback as the Cleveland Browns are clearly over. That Monday night game was an embarrassment. You know, this was a season that Browns had really high expectations. Right. And it was funny, most of the high expectations were for the offense and the questions were about the defense. The defense has been incredible this year. Nick Chubb has been awesome this year. And listen, Odell didn't quite work out, but really the problem has been Baker Mayfield. And you clearly saw it in the second half of the year. And there are a few things more destructive to a franchise than screwing up the number one overall pick. And it certainly looks like that may be what happened with Cleveland. I think he still has one more year. He's clearly not getting the extension. I think everyone in Cleveland is just ready to move on from him. And it's a shame because Cleveland was a franchise that was set up well for the future, but they picked the wrong quarterback. And in the NFL, that'll get you. Yeah, absolutely. My blunder of the week, my friend, actually is a game that we talked about briefly earlier in, in this episode. Tennessee Purdue. <laughs> After further review, the ruling on the field is confirmed. First after this. Wow. How do you not see a touchdown there? <laughs> yeah, I know. How will how? <laughs> I sat there and I was like going. Is there nothing we can do? Can we not take this to the Supreme Court? Can we not? <laughs> no, is, they will be no help. <laughs> is there's no tribunal? How on earth does a clear touchdown just get ignored? And I'm not a fan of either university. I actually have, have not watched either team <laughs> in years, years. And yet I found myself so incredibly invested because when you go back and you look at that play, and you see how miraculous it is that he was able to fight through all of that and get the nose of that football over the plane and get an actual touchdown, only to beat his body up to have the ref go, no. <laughs> uh, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah, I so angry. <laughs> This is the sort of passion that a meaningless bowl game can provide for us over the holidays <laughs> and therefore why we should have more of them. Was that the fried chicken bowl? Or I think, yeah, I think that, was, that, was, that was the Popeye's bowl. I think that was, oh, okay. the, that was the Popeye's bowl. I think that's the right food group. And that's our show for the week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienemy, Megan Burney, Roz Guevara, and Marshall Eisen. Did I do that right? You did. I feel good. Our engineer is Aaliyah Jackson. Music is Gloria Tells. Sound design is by David Wilson. We'll be back next Wednesday for a breakdown of the biggest sports stories of the week. And hopefully I'll be able to say the names right for the rest of their lives. 
Also, a quick reminder, we will be a day later next week. Not because we're lazy. We work very hard, both of us. But because the national championship game is Monday night. A, we're going to want to talk about that. And B, I will be flying back from Indianapolis to Georgia afterwards. So we will not be able to tape our ordinary time. So we will be taping on Wednesday, probably coming out Thursday morning. So be forewarned, you're going to get all your Georgia-Alabama talk and whatever the heck else we come up with. But no, it will be a day later next week. So be not afraid when Wednesday morning comes. You're like, refresh, 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 refresh. Where's the show? No, it's coming on Thursday morning instead.